Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Delivering U.S. Army Modernization. Please welcome our host, Thomas Spohr, Director of the Heritage Foundation Center for National Defense. And I want to welcome you to our event today, Delivering U.S. Army Modernization, featuring Army Chief of Staff General James C. McConville. Well, these are certainly some interesting times. I know we say that a lot, but these seem more interesting than, than normal. The Army finds itself with no shortage of challenges. You know, recent budgeted budgets have exerted downward pressure uh, on the Army. I wrote a paper recently that said that Army buying power has gone down 10% since fiscal year 2018. COVID and low unemployment rates make, uh, uh, make recruiting challenging, frankly, and we're seeing that in the papers nowadays. And, and Tuesday, I guess, uh, summing it all up, uh, Army Secretary Christine Warmoth confirmed that difficult uh, choices lie ahead. Competing with these budget challenges is the reality that the procurement holiday that took place from 2001 to 2020 created an overwhelming need for the Army modern, to be modernized. And although the Biden administration's 2023 budget is delayed at this point, Congress will turn its attention to that, to that budget and the authorization bills. And when they do, they're probably going to have some questions for Army leaders. Well, today we're honored to have Army General James McConville, the 40th Chief of Staff of the Army, to join us to help us understand how the Army is navigating these pressures and what he sees as the major challenges and opportunities ahead. We're gonna start off with me asking General McConville a few questions, but then we wanna to turn to your audience questions. And so you're looking at this through an application and on that application, you'll find a tab to ask us questions. And if you click on that, and if you write us a question, we will do our very best, ladies and gentlemen, to get to your question. So we have a great program and let's drive on because I wanna to get to as many questions as we can. You know, by means of brief introduction, General McConville assumed duties as the 40th Chief of Staff of the Army on August 9, 2019, after serving as the Vice Chief of Staff of the Army. Been in this position, I guess now, two and a half years? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's a proud uh, native of Quincy, Massachusetts. And I have to tell you, I was looking on the internet and I saw where Quincy has named a street after you. They did, very, very proud. And, yeah, that and, is. And, and along with uh, General Joe Dunford. Yeah, that is super cool. Yeah, yeah that is neat. So uh, General McConville attended the United States Military Academy at West Point and also holds a Master of Science degree in Aerospace Engineering from the Georgia Institute of Technology. Among uh, General McConville's notable assignments, and there are a number of them, he commanded the storied 101st Airborne Division in Afghanistan in combat. I also saw, that you can correct me here, that you are... You have commanded a division longer than anybody, or? Very blessed. I mean, certainly the, the 101st Airborne Division, the yeah. longest serving division commander. In that history uh, of that division. Others have said the longest division command. I don't, I can't really, okay. you know, Fair enough. Uh, verify then, that. But yeah. I, I, the 101st, that is correct statement. Yeah, that is super cool. And it'll stay that way until I leave as Chief of Staff. <laughs> so I, everyone that goes in there, I say, you will not be there as long as I am. So that's the... the, the Two the, years, 11 months, but you got to go. That's exactly right, <laughs> yes. And then also commanded the uh, 4th Brigade, 1st Cavalry Division during Operation Iraqi Freedom. So, uh, General McConville, uh, thanks for being here, sir. Really appreciate it. 
Let me hit you with an opening question, if I can, to get things going here. So soon as we talked about the administration's going to deliver the 2023 budget request to Congress, and you and Secretary Warmoth will be asked to come testify about it. Uh, Tuesday, uh, Secretary Warmoth, over at another com competitor think tank, uh, stated that the Army is going to have to make tough choices, 2023 to 2027, and, quote, everything is on the table. So hoping for a preview, what will you tell Congress about the Army today? What do you see as your bigger cha biggest challenges, and what are the opportunities? Yeah, well, I, I start off with what I would tell them about the Army is I'm just incredibly proud of our soldiers, our civilians, our families. I mean, you know, what they have done really over this last year, over the last couple of years to me is absolutely amazing. You know, we're, we're, we're fighting through a pandemic. Contributions are around the United States when it comes to supporting uh, hospitals and, and all types of uh, in the states and the community has just been huge. But, you know, when you take a look at what's been going on around the world too, our soldiers are uh, providing security around the world. They're doing incredible type operations. And so I just could not be more proud of what they're doing. And when we talk to Congress is, you know, our job and the secretary's talk, talked about a sustainable strategic path. And, you know, our job is to provide the best army we can, we can provide with the resources we get. And, you know, we realize that we, you know, we have to take care of our people. Uh, and we, we're, we're doing that with the resources we get. We have to be ready, and you're seeing readiness as, as our units go off on short notice around the world to reassure allies and partners, and that's happening as we speak, and also holding those accountable that, um, you know, hold us at risk in, in taking care of some of those problem sets. And, 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 and we have to modernize the Army. We have to. Um, you know, we, we talk about over the last 20 years, um, and, you know, we were focused on counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, and, and we developed an army to do that. But as we look to the future, um, we certainly have pacing competitors we need to be concerned about, and we have to transform the Army. I argue that the Army that we have today was, was basically built about 40 years ago when I first came in the Army by some great leaders, and we incrementally improved those type systems, and we need to do the same thing right now, and that's what we intend to do. What, what happens if we're not able to pull this off, if this modernization that you say is incredibly important doesn't take place? Well, I think, I think it's going to take place. Yeah. And I think it has to take place. And, you know, and, and the Secretary and I are committed to modernizing the Army. That's why um, she has said everything is on the table. We're taking a hard look uh, at, at everything. And, you know, we, we'd like to have a big stick, but if we can't have a big stick, we better have a sharp stick. Right. And that's what we're looking at. Cool. Uh, let me ask you, so Army Futures Command about, it's probably over, it's almost the same time as you took over the starting of Army Futures Command, isn't it? It is. It was General Milley and, yeah. and, 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 and Secretary Esper, right. you know, kind of put it in place. And then uh, Secretary McCarthy and myself have been carrying on and, yeah. and, and bringing it to fruition. How would you, how would you, what kind of grade would you give to Army Futures well, I'm, Command? I'm very pleased with what yeah. Army Futures Command is doing. You know, if you take a look at, you know, we've talked often about our 31 plus 4 um, programs and uh, that we're developing right now and, and when you look at the speed that they're getting after this yeah. and you know I take a look at it and I, I've talked about 24 out of these 35 systems going to be in place by you know 2023 now are they going to be full units equipped no but we're talking to me success for those involved in the modernization effort is it's in soldiers hands soldiers have it they're working it a lot of these systems are going to be what I call the alpha model. You know, they're not going to be perfect. 
but if you take a look at even our big five, if you go back and look at the Abrams, the Bradley, the Apache, the Blackhawk, and Patriots, when they first came in the system, you know, there were, you know, if you go back and read, you know, they weren't the, the, the world-class systems that they are today. Uh, so we, we need to get these systems in, in the hands of soldiers. We need to rapidly develop them as we do it, and that's what we're seeing happening around the Army. And the fact we have Futures Command, one of the things I've learned uh, in the Army and, you know, and in, 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 in really in the military, um, you have to have someone focused on the future if you want to get it done. And, and, and they're doing it, and they're doing it in close coordination uh, with our acquisition executives. They're doing it in close coordination uh, with our technology leaders. They're doing it with industry. And the other thing is, which I'm really happy with, is you know, we're having our best soldiers, our best NCOs, you know, committed to doing this. And so we're getting great feedback and developing these systems that I would say at the speed of relevance. Very nice. So I'll hit on maybe a sensitive topic. I remember at the start, maybe even a few times since, there was tension between the acquisition secretary in the Army, the assistant secretary of the Army for acquisition and Army Futures Command. Can you talk about where that's at today? Well, I think um, everyone has shares the same vision. Yeah. Um, you know, there's always a certain amount of checks and balances that go on in the system. Our, our system is designed that way. You know, we have civilian control of the military and absolutely need that. Um, but, you know, everyone is trying to do the right thing. What, what I've found works the best is when everyone shares the same vision, yeah. the same objectives. And, you know, when we talk about what winning looks like and, and we want to define, it's not the process. You know, what winning looks like if you're in, you know, the acquisition uh, arena is what did we deliver to our soldiers that can protect them on the battlefield and right. give them the edge they need? And, and that's what we're trying to get everyone committed to. Um, General Mike Murray, who we both knew, left, I want to say, December, first part of December. How's it looking for a new commander of Army Futures Command? Well, we, we have, you know, uh, we certainly have options in, in moving forward on that. And, yeah. we're, you know, there's a process that, uh, a very rigorous process that uh, nominations go through, and we're hoping that comes to fruition pretty soon. Okay, good. Um, you established, the Army established six modernization priorities in yeah. 2019. And to your credit, you have not wavered off those priorities. You have not created like a 6.5 or a 7 or anything like that. Do you, as you go forward, do you see the need to modify those modernization priorities? I don't. And, okay. you know, and again, the, the Secretary's taking a look at it, and she's yeah. take, which is really good to have, you know, someone coming in, you know, and taking a look at, at those priorities. I think what we're going to, you know, take a hard look at is, you know, each program that's under the 31 plus 4, how are they doing? You know, and as I talk to industry, you know, we have to make tough decisions, but tough decisions become a lot easier when you have a program that's not on performance, that's not on schedule, that's not on cost. So that's a, you know, call to action. We need these systems. You know, we're continuing to take a look at them. Some of these systems are changing as we get soldiers on it. So what started uh, as a certain system is changing along the way. But you know, we're not steadfastness, but the other thing I've also, as you, if you worked in this environment, is you want to stick to priorities yeah. and, and you want to stay with it so industry can invest and industry has invested. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I believe that we still have requirement for, the, for these systems and we need to get the resources to field them. Okay. 31 plus 4 means uh, 31 programs managed under the uh, cross-functional teams plus 4 managed elsewhere. Is it possible we could be at 28 plus 2, or, you know, or is, that, is that number anything special about that number? No, it's not, and I, and I think it, it could be. Any, yeah. any, you know, anything is possible. Yeah. Uh, you know, could we come back to, 
you know, notion of, you know, what's the best army we can deliver with the resources we get, you know? And, and every secretary and every chief is, is really going across priorities. You know, we talk about, and we haven't, you know, Secretary and I have, she's put out her six objectives, which I think are, are really important. They're gonna drive us through. But when we come back to, you know, it's about people, it's about readiness, it's about modernization. Yeah. And what we have to do is take those resources that are gonna be constrained no matter how much we get and, and, and have a priority, you know? And so we wanna take care of our people and, 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 and our people are our soldiers from all three components. Yeah. There are uh, civilians who are extremely important and there are families. And so, you know, we wanna have good quality of life for, for our people, you know, uh, we always would like, and I've talked about this, to have a bigger army, but guess what? You know, every, every, that's a trade there. And we know, and, and this is something I'm not willing to compromise with readiness. If we're going to send sons and daughters into harm's way, they have to be ready. And so we are committed to giving the training today. But when we look at modernization, that's really future readiness. And so, you know, those are the things we're trying to balance. And I think sometimes you can let the future go because you're so focused on the present. And, you know, what we've tried to do, and we're having a command, like Futures Command, it, it, it gives us a focus on the future. And we owe it, uh, as a secretary and a chief, to provide future leaders options. And we're doing that right now. And, you know, we can work out the numbers, we can work out, you know, how fast, how soon, but, you know, 10 years from now, you know, we don't want to be leaving the secretary and the chief legacy uh, systems you know, ideally, we've transformed and modernized the Army so they have a lot of options going in the future. Quick uh, question about the Integrated Visual Augmentation System, or yeah. IVAS. I know right. you guys paused it last year, I guess, and, and, and doing some tweaks. Can you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, I, I, you, know, you know, to me, that is a, a transformational yeah. item uh, when you take a look at it. You know, and I kind of, I often use the example of the phone. You know, you know we, the, 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 the process we went on, you know, you, you're old enough to remember the rotary phone, you know, and then people wanted to go to a cordless phone because they wanted to be able to walk around the house, and we went to a cell phone and, and all those things. But then, transformationally, people came in with, you know, an iPhone or some type of capability that changed how we communicate. Yeah. Um, we've been improving our night vision goggle systems over the years. I, I was flying with full face uh, PVS-5s back in the day. They were kind of clunky, and then we cut the things out, and we've gotten better and better, and now we've got this enhanced night vision goggle Bravo that's very fused that the troops really like. Well, what IBIS is doing is bringing a lot more capability in. It, it, you know, and, and we've had troops on it, so they're going through the process. Um, this thing has been fielded at an incredible speed. And if you take a look at maybe you know the, the original cell phone, it was a little bigger and maybe a little more clunky than we might have wanted. So, so we're working through that to make sure that the, the troops have a functional uh, system that can withstand the rigors of, of combat. But what we're seeing is the capabilities that's providing, the ability to fuse night vision systems, the ability to give uh, soldiers and leaders the information that they need on the battlefield, the, the, the ability to navigate you know, very, very quickly and know exactly where you are. And then you walk back into the ability in the future to do rehearsals on actually train before you do it, and the ability to train. All those things are coming together. Now, is that gonna take some time? Absolutely. And when you look at 
futures and how fast uh, this is coming into being. We're talking two or three years. You know, right. usually when we talk about acquisition and major programs, we're talking seven years to get a requirement, seven to eight years to go through the acquisition process, 15, 20 years. So uh, I think we need to recognize when you, you know, when you go to speed, you're not going to get exactly right. Especially, I, you know, I think the closer to a soldier a piece of equipment is, the more precise it has to be. You know, I mean, like helmets, boots, things like that, they have to be exactly right for soldiers to accept them. And IVAS is probably like that. Yeah, one of the things we've done with IVAS and uh, General C.D. Donahue was kind of the lead that, that got this thing going. But, you know, as he's gone back to the 82nd and, you know, we've had great soldiers and NCOs on this system. So Rangers, Marines, 82nd, people that are uh, kind of masters of the craft. And they're working very closely with the, with the company that's doing it to get it better. You know, so they're getting what they want. They're getting the input. It's, and, and the engineers are working side by side with soldiers and saying, well, this is why we, you know, don't like this. So this is how we do this. And they're out in patrols together. And they're going, you know, we're putting them out in rough conditions. This is what it's like in cold weather. This is what it's like in very, very hot weather. This is, you know, the type of rigors that a soldier would go through. And this works very, very well. And as the technology improves, it'll get lighter, it'll get smaller, it'll get more capable, yeah. capable, just like that big old cell phone that we used to have, and now you all have them sitting in your pockets. Right, yeah. I would remind our audience uh, joining us virtually to please uh, enter your questions at the question tab, and we'll get to those uh, very soon here. Maybe the last question, at least, that I'll have on modernization is on future vertical lift, helicopter programs. You guys are pursuing quickly two programs, future aerial reconnaissance uh, FARA and FLARA, an right. assault and a re reconnaissance. Yeah, future attack reconnaissance aircraft and a future long-range assault aircraft. Yeah, and the chattering classes here in Washington, D.C. are uh, opining that there's no way the Army can yeah. field both of these on the same timeline, that something's going to break. Can you talk about the yeah. need for these aircraft? Well, I, I think it's, it's transformational. You know, if you go back to the Big Five, yeah. And, you know, at that time, the, the secretaries and chiefs had the wherewithal to say, you know what, we're going to have an Apache helicopter, which was an attack helicopter. We're going to have a Black Hawk that's going to do this. And we also had developed a Chinook then, too. So we actually developed three platforms. Yeah. And as we take a look at in the future, uh, I would argue those aircraft are, you know, the best aircraft in the world for where they're at. Yeah. But as we take a look at the future, um, one of the things that we're learning is the importance of speed the importance of range and the importance of convergence. And as we see in the future, what we've done with those platforms is we've incrementally improved them over the last 40 years. Right. And they'll be around for a while. They're not going away. But as we think about transformational change with the Army, we want aircraft that can fly much faster. We want aircraft that can go much further. We want aircraft that can deliver uh, soldiers at a, a greater range when you, when you start thinking about the golden hour. Right. You know, right now it's it's defined by basically 100 miles because you know you're basically one hour a Blackhawk can go so far. Well, imagine if you could go two to three times that fast. What does that give us for range uh, as far as for our commanders on the ground? If you have to go in and get someone, what does that do for us? When you start to look at systems uh, that can deliver, you know, air-launched effects from, you know, not six or seven kilometers but very, very long ranges, you start to change the dynamics. And you know, some have said, well, is there any room for manned aircraft in the future? I, 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 I'm a believer, I've been working with unmanned aircraft since 1990. 
and you know use them uh, to our advantage in 2004, 2005 when we were flying over cities. You know, man on man teaming, and have watched at that. And you know, we do a lot of things with drones or unmanned aircraft, and that's certainly something we're very, very concerned about. Uh, but there, to me, there's always going to be a place for a person in the loop. Doesn't necessarily need to be in the lead aircraft. Doesn't necessarily need to be clearing um, that road in, in 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 the lead vehicle. But we we don't want to, at least in my eyes, walk away from what happens um, with a with a person that can actually see the battlefield and maneuver around the battlefield in the way they do it. And, and we could talk a bunch of taxes, but I believe in these aircraft. You know. Uh, are not going to be delivered in 23. You know, what we're doing is setting the conditions for the future of the Army, for future secretaries in chief to have a capability that's transformational. We know right now we can incrementally improve what we have, but you're going to get to a point where the incremental improvements are not transformational. Yep. And, and that's what we're trying to do for the Army. So I see, when people say you can't afford it, I say, well, I think we need it. Um, I look at uh, someone that had my job, you know, General Marshall, and uh, I was reading an old piece that he wrote, and he, he said something to the effect of, you know, right before World War II, he goes, when I had the time, I didn't have the money. And when I got the money, I didn't have the time. And what we're trying to do is hedge on that. You know, we're trying to find that, that hedge point where, you know, in 2028, 2029, the chief and secretary can make a decision, you know what? I'm going to take a look at these endurance systems we have, and we're going to start procuring transformational systems because we probably would have had to recap these older systems anyways, which we do. And, and now we've given an opportunity to do something very, very different. Same thing, you know, some people are going, why do you need to replace the Bradley, next generation combat vehicle? Right. I mean, you know, take a look at, you know, the technology that we have. We're not using a 40-year-old phone. You know, no one would, you know, a little dial-up type phone. We're not, we're not doing that. And so what we're trying to do, the secretary and myself, is take the resources we have. Um, we're doing, you know, you've heard of Night Court. Night Court is on everything. Every person, every dollar matters. And we're really going through, rolling our sleeves up. We did that with our modernization efforts, but we're looking at every how we do business completely in the Army. And, 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 and that comes to trade. It, you know, do we need more people? Sure we do. But do you want more people or do you want to have a modernization program? Do you want to have you know, this or do you want people living in barracks? You know, those are the type of decisions that have to be made. Yep. Excellent. General, I'd like to shift gears and talk about recruiting for a moment here. And uh, we are starting to see signs in the media that the military is having trouble recruiting the number of people it needs. And I guess that ought not to be a surprise to us when you go to your restaurants and they all say uh, help wanted and you can read in the paper where there are many more job openings than there are people pursuing them. So I guess we ought not to be astonished that that would extend to the military. But uh, the Air Force a couple weeks ago talked about their, they are half of where they are and their pool of people that are waiting to enter the Air Force. And then the Army, the uh, General Vereen, the commander of Army Recruiting Command, has talked about he's upping bonuses to $50,000, uh, and, and the Army is offering uh, more and more opportunities for two-year enlistments, which is may be attractive to young people, but it's difficult in the Army because you're now training at a much more frequent rate. Can you talk about yeah. uh, the challenges you're seeing in recruiting? Well, I think, I think everyone right now is we're in a war for talent. Yeah. You know, we want the, the best young men and women that come in 
and, and give, give, we want to give them an opportunity to, to those who want to serve, an opportunity to serve. And, and I, I, I look at the Army, what, what a great place um, to start, what a great place to maybe even stay. And I, I look at it as an escalator to success. You know, you come in, you know, I was a working class kid from Quincy, and maybe you can be the chief of staff of the Army. Who knows, you know? Uh, right down the street was General Joe Dunford, a working class kid, and he got to be the chairman and the comrade Marine Corps. But I know so many um, of our soldiers who have extraordinary stories, who came in the Army and, and, and you know, and many that stayed came in for two years or came in for three years. And what we want to do is, is give people an opportunity, you know, take a look at it. You know, I often, you know, write letters to, you know, I got one, you know, the, the other day, 95 years old, 100 years old, people are very successful, but they, you know, they're so proud of that, those years that they served in the service. Yep. And when they look back on their lives, they go, you know, I made, a, you know, maybe made a lot of money, I did this, but, you know, maybe besides, you know, my family, one of the most important things I did was serve my country. And we want to give everyone that opportunity. So are we challenged? Yes, we are. And we have, you know, uh, uh, challenges because, quite frankly, who's qualified to come in? The numbers have come down. I, I was reading something in the uh, 1960s from uh, President John F. Kennedy right before he took presidency. He was lamenting about only 50% of Americans were qualified to come in the military. We'd take that in a second. You know, I mean, we're, we're, we're starting to see where we used to say 29%, and now we're down to maybe 23% of Americans are qualified to come in. And what we see, and, and this is when we have to do a better job of exposing young men and women to the military, because some have said and it's become a family business. Um, you know, we have a lot of our non senior non-commissioned officers and, and, and officers have sons and daughters that are serving the military because it's very familiar to them. They, they know what it looks like, but we want to open up that aperture and give every young man and women an opportunity to serve. And we're doing that. We're re our retention rates are very good. Yeah. In fact, you know, and, and that's allowed us to really re reduce the amount of people we need to bring in the Army. And the other thing we're trying to do is, to me, quality is more important than quantity. Yeah. It really is. And, and you know, the two-year... Uh, investment, uh, you know, some people said, you know, one of the things we like about that is we also want to spend time for our reserve forces, you know, and, and because our retention is so good in the active, historically, that's really fed our reserve forces. So we're, we're working our way through that. But, you know, for all those out there, uh, you know, watching, uh, you know, we, we need all the help we can get to inspire uh, young men and women to come into the Army. And I don't think they'll be sorry they did. Yeah. So maybe the two-year enlistment, the big idea behind that is get in, and you, we know you're going to love it, and so you're not going to do a two-year enlistment. You'll do a four or a six or something like is that. Is that part of it? Well, I think it's part, but, you, but you're going to go in the reserves, too. Yes. So, so you have yeah. an opportunity to come in and, and serve and, uh, and then go, go into the reserves, go home and serve in the reserves. So I think, I think there's value there. But I, what we're seeing, too, is you know, I remember when I came in, I went to West Point, and one of my, you know, big, you know, kind of challenges was I had a five-year commitment uh, coming out of West Point. I go, I'll be 27 when I can get out of the Army. When you were young, that just seemed like you were so old, and, you know, here I am 40-some-odd years plus. So we don't know, you know, and, and what I tell young men and women, keep your options open. Yeah. You know, you just don't know uh, what you're going to do. But, you know, the, the great thing about the Army is you can do anything you want in the Army. 
We, we, we have it all, you know? I mean, we certainly have, you know, that, 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 the, the best high-speed infantry you're gonna have. You can be in aviation, you can be in artillery, but you can do medical stuff, you can do cyber, you're gonna get world-class training, and, uh, and I think it's just a great place uh, to start, and for some of us, I guess it's gonna be a great place to finish. <laughs> you know, people are living to like 80 plus years now, so now there's enough time for like two or three careers, and so the fact that somebody starts in the army does not mean that they have shut any doors. They have, in fact, opened doors. No, it is. I mean, you know, the, the, the leadership training you get, the yeah. discipline you get. The, you know, you know. I like to tell people we're the world's greatest health club. Where, where else do you get paid five days a week to work out and, and be fit for the rest of your life? You know, so. Yeah, cool. And we're going to invest in you. We're going to invest, uh, you know, in your kids. And you know, again, I I signed up all my kids. You know, so I need everyone else to do the same. <laughs> General, earlier you talked about the size of the Army, and uh, I know that's a big topic right now. And you're on record. This was your uh, confirmation hearing. Uh, you talked about you believe the Army uh, was too small. And until about two years ago or a year ago, the Army was modestly growing a couple of thousand a year. And then last year, you had to announce that because of budget pressures, yeah. uh, you had to stop the Army from growing. Your aspiration was to get to 500,000 in the active component. Do you do you still believe the army is active component in the whole total? Yeah, I mean, I, small? I, I mean, I, I haven't changed my opinion as far as do I think the army should be bigger? Uh, you know, absolutely. But it gets back to you know my other thing I said is we're going to deliver the best army we can with the resources we get, and it gets back to this: you want a big stick or you want a sharp stick? I I believe in a sharp stick, and I want to make sure that you know every person in the United States Army counts. You know, and, and, and that's the type of analysis. Every dollar counts in how we spend it. And so, you know, my intent, and, and, and I think the Secretary shares is, you know, we want the best army we can get. We've got to make sure they're ready, and we've got to make sure um, that we have a modernization program for the future so it's balanced. So, you know, as you take a look at end strength, sure, we'd like a bigger army. Everyone, you know, who wouldn't, you know? But, you know, what's the right number that, you know, we're not, um, you know, burning out people on deployments and at the same time we have we can do all we need to do uh, but 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 to me it's really about quality is more important than quantity especially as we see the future battlefield that we're going to operate on uh, these you know young soldiers non-commissioned officers and officers can be put into very challenging environments and you know I've seen that around the world and 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 what we find is they're going to have to be able to operate. And in these environments, people that can do their job is a lot more important than having, you know, a whole lot of people. And, and that's, that's where we're going. You know, what struck me, uh, you know, we read every day about Ukraine and the Russian forces that are across the border, either in Belarus or in Russia. And they talk about the modern equipment that the Russian Federation has, you know, T-72 tanks with the latest thermal sights, uh, Iskander M missiles with ranges of 500 kilometers, something like that. Uh, these are. This is not the Russian army that we grew up making fun of when we were coming up in the army. And I think uh, th there's something to be learned. I think for us in that, and that they've invested in their modernization programs. I don't know if you have a comment on that. Or no, I think um, you know we we should um, you know be concerned about. You know all our competitors yeah. and you know we're certainly concerned about what's going on around uh, Ukraine uh, right. right now and yeah. so from a from military standpoint um, you know we want to be the most powerful army we can because that's how you deter 
you know, other countries from uh, taking uh, actions as a cost associated uh, with behaviors if you're going to attack another sovereign country or something along those lines. So I think it's it's really important as one of the you know, uh, whole of government efforts that we have a strong military, you know, the peace through strength, you know, that um, President Reagan talked about when, when I came in the military at my, you know, in fact, he spoke at my college graduation and actually gave that speech. Uh, but it, it's a whole of government effort, you know, and it really is. And, and part of our job, at least my job, is to make sure we have the strongest army we can have. So that that's that's in the, uh, you know, the kit bag or it's in the, in, you know, the quiver of uh, those who are doing, uh, you know, diplomacy. You know, we're, we're here to support diplomacy and support policy, and we want to make sure we have the strongest military to be able to do that. Last year, as a, a member of the Joint Chiefs, you submitted a unfunded requirements list to Congress in, in accordance with the law, and uh, it struck me as I was looking at that list how many of those things seemed like critical things. They weren't nice to have. They were kind of need-to-have kind of things, uh, barracks, child care centers, uh, joint lightweight tactical vehicle, things like that. Um, it, it was kind of a measure for me to how much pressure the Army was on that these things had to be on an unfunded list versus a funded list. Can you just talk about the pressures yeah. you're feeling in that well, regard? Well, you know, it, it kind of, I keep coming back to that point, but, you yeah. know, because people ask me about the, you know, people always want to ask me, well, is the budget sufficient? Right. And I, I, and I, what I tell people is we're going to get a budget and we're going to give you the best Army that we can with that budget. But here are the things that we're not going to be able to afford. Yeah. And, and if you saw the, you know, the unfunded requirements list, it runs a gamut. You know, some people will come up with a very small one, but we had to make trades, you know, in the people business, you know. So we can't, you know, if people will come to us and say, hey, your barracks aren't good enough, right. or your housing's not good enough, or your child development centers. Now, we have a long-term plan, or your industrial base is not modernized, or you're not doing enough of these, you're not doing enough of those, or you haven't bought enough of these. And they're all valid points. And, you know, and, and my point is, and, and, and as you said, by statutory requirements, I, I have to come back and say, okay, here's what's not getting done. You've got a budget. You can see, you know, you, you certainly have the uh, capability to, within our budget. You know, that's why we have oversight to move things around. But these are the things that we would have liked to get done if we could. And that's what, you know, that's how the system works, and uh, and we lay that out. Okay. I know um, I was talking to your staff. You've got a busy travel schedule both ahead of you and behind you, and you and the Sergeant Major of the Army get out about and talk to soldiers and family members. I'm, I know people would be curious about when you ask them, hey, what's on your mind or what's worrying you, what, what do they tell you? I think, you know, when I talk to soldiers and families, uh, I, I think one of the biggest things, you know, we, one of the things we talk about is people first, yeah. you know, and, and people is not just soldiers. It is soldiers, but it's also their families. And, and, and I think a lot of people just want to make sure that, you know, they're getting the quality of life services. They're getting quality housing and they're getting quality child development centers. I think we're seeing a, um, a, a maybe different type of person that operates in the Army, you know. Uh, we have a lot of dual military and we have a lot of dual professionals, you know, so child development centers are extremely uh, important uh, if we're going to compete for families. And, you know, if you, you think about it, I, I keep coming back, we're in a war for talent. You know, we have incredible, um, you know, women that serve in the Army and, and you know, uh, we want to make sure that they can have the family that they want to have. And so that that's going to change how we do business. Uh, child development centers, um, I think it's 89 percent 
of our sergeants and above have a family. So if we want to keep them, we have to take care of their family. That's our leadership, yeah. you know, and I think that's really important. So, you know, part of people first, the way that plays out in the budget is we are putting money into housing. We are putting money into billets. We are building child development centers. Spousal employment is something we're really working hard on because we want to take care of families. We're even going after the moves, you know, and how, how are PCS moves. All these type things that influence, you know, someone's you know thought about do we stay in the army or not stay in the army we want to take care of care of people excellent thank you uh, Dakota how are we looking for questions from the audience do we have some uh, we've got 40 oh, so let's let's uh, go, uh, we'll go now to the audience and again just because we have 40 doesn't mean we're not going to get to your question but so go ahead yeah so the the buckets really uh, have to do with all the things you've addressed you know it's it's budget acquisition programs the things that you want to get do you have the money to do that the second bucket really has to do with talent management and people uh, which you have been addressing. Uh, one of the comments on that is we've got too many generals, but I'll, I'll leave that on the side. The third bucket then really is big war. So, you know, the Army, like the services, has dealt with <clears throat> 20 years of fighting against irregular forces. Now you're looking at Russia and Ukraine. Uh, how does the People's Liberation Army shape up? Uh, and so if we start with that one, I think, first, or grab a lot of these questions, and how is the Army accounting for the shift to big war where you don't have <clears throat> maybe assured air power or comms or your logistics supply lines are being interdicted, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it, and that's where I at least make, try to make the argument about the need to uh, transform the Army. And the reason why we need to do it right now is uh, I agree with the, the person who asked the question is, you know, over the last 20 years, uh, you know, since 9-11, you know, we have grown up in an environment of really what I would say counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, irregular warfare. And, and, and those are the type of systems that we purchase. You know, if you think about some of the big purchases, you know, a lot of stuff associated with counter IED, the, you know, our MRAP vehicles, our JLTV, those type things that we needed, um, our drones that were designed for uh, a, a, a environment where you really don't have an active air defense. And so if you take a look at our six modernization priorities, number one is long-range precision fires. And so we have to not only, you know, you know, use those when you think about large-scale ground combat operations. I mean, the things that deter people in large-scale ground combat operations are, are certainly its fires, its, its, its mechanized forces, its tanks, its Bradleys, its attack helicopters, all those type things that we see moving around uh, Ukraine and other places, you know, we need to modernize the force to do that. So that's what we're trying to get after large scale, you know, and set the army not only for today, but how do we set the army for the future? Uh, and, and the big concept that, that we're seeing, um, and I've talked a little about this, is how do you get speed, range, and convergence? And, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, we may have, you know, uh, you know we're developing hypersonic missiles, so guess what? They're going to have, you know, high speed. They're going to have long range, but how do you get the convergence of other systems that are actually going to help us with targeting and an integrated uh, battle command system where you can quickly get to the decision? I, I used to use an example when I was commanding the 101st Air Division. We had a lot of helicopters, and the helicopters basically, just for simple math, you know, um, fly about 100 miles an hour. And, and I would argue if if we took 10 hours to go through our planning process to get those helicopters, you know, into uh, the fight for the ground maneuver commander, we're only moving at 10 miles an hour. 
Think about that. That was the speed of decision making. And I go, if we're moving at 10 miles an hour, we might as well take a truck. Save your money. Don't buy a $30 million helicopter. Buy a $250,000 thing. It's the same thing when you start thinking about how quickly can we um, get effects on an enemy matter. And one of the things, we just went through a, a big program called uh, Project Convergence. And we did it with a joint force. And we, had, we brought a bunch of sensors together coming through an integrated battle command system that passes it to, um, you know, joint fires. And we're able to move things into the minutes, you know, in, in even some, some cases to seconds, vice, hours, or even some cases days. That is the future. And that's why we believe, uh, you know, the modernization priorities, the 31 plus four, and brought together by Project Convergence as part of the joint force is so critical for the future of not only the Army, the military, and our joint partners. All these issues are so related, right? So it goes right into that second bucket bucket of you know budget and acquisition programs, what you all have already been discussing. So when you think about you know program objective memoranda authorities that are either given or withdrawn, um, you know where Army Futures Command comes from, unfunded priority lists. I mean, you're uh, the, a number of questions really had to do about that. And they're all tied together. They're all I mean, tied and, together. And the other thing that I, I don't think we should forget is is talent management. One of the big things that we're doing in the Army is we're moving from an industrial age personnel management s system to a 21st century talent management system. And so people, what, what, do you, what do you mean by that? You know. Well, first of all, one of the big things we're doing is bringing the total force onto one personnel system, which seems you know, like a simple thing. It's a, it's a very long task, but you know, we have great soldiers in our guard and reserve, but they're all in different personnel systems, and we're actually bringing them together on integrated personnel and pay systems. So what that allows you to do is basically see your million soldiers on one system. The other thing we're doing is we're, we're defining people, once we get this system firmly in place, by more than two variables. You know, the way we tend to define people is, you know, you're a sergeant of infantry or you're uh, a specialist of, you know, medic and those type things. You know, one of the most interesting things, and this is by way of example, is uh, part of Futures Command, we set up a software factory because we realize that, you know, you know, and the secretary talks about data fabric and, and is, is number two data-centric army. Future is data, the ability to move data very, very quickly. You can't do convergence. You can't bring all these systems together, the joint systems and senses, without being able to move data very, very quickly. So we have to be able to, if you're going to use artificial intelligence, you've got to be able to write code on the battlefield. So we, we set up a software factory, and we, we put out a, a call, who wants to be in the software factory? And I went down there, and I met three, three soldiers. Um, one was a medic. The other one was a baker, a cook, and the other one was an automotive mechanic. And they code at the PhD level. And I really found that interesting, you know, and, and they're willing to come in and, and, and you know, because we have two PhD computer scientists that have all the right degrees, and they say these soldiers code at the same level. This is where talent management, we got a ton of talent in the Army. We just got to be able to see it. And, you know, and especially in our guard and reserve, where sometimes they're, their level of um, grade and military occupational specialist masks what they, they really can bring to the Army. So we're gathering talent management 
for the future of the Army is probably the most important thing we're going to do. And leadership, getting the right leaders in the right place is, is really important. I just want to talk, if I could just say a second. We put in to the Army uh, an assessment program. We have a battalion command assessment program, a colonel's command assessment program. It's a lot like a professional football combine where you actually try out and go through a process. And we're learning a whole bunch about you know, leaders and getting the right leaders in the right place. And, and we think this is extremely important, probably one of the most important things we're going to do for the future. I think you're looking at my notes from all the questions that have come in because it bleeds right into that, right, the talent management piece. So some, uh, one person commented about the exodus of captains. Uh, another person has commented about how do you retain your junior enlisted ranks. It's better to retain instead of having to recruit and bring in, and you lost all those years of things. And then there are these very socially prevalent issues like, you know, diversity and inclusion, et cetera. And, and people will at times criticize that uh, are, does this lead to a loss of standards, right? You know, those sorts of things. So just the nature yeah, of some let, of the people. Let me talk about the captains, because we are in a war. And here's what we're trying to do with captains. And, and I'm, I am a recovering G1. I used to be the director of personnel. I, I, I didn't know anything about personnel, but I got, I got to learn it through the eyes um, of uh, a former commander that was taking a look at it. And, you know, one of the things, and I, re I read all the books about talent management with bleeding talent and all those type things, and some of the things are, are, are really correct. Others are not so. Like, one of the headlines was, hey, 50% of the captains are getting out. You hear that and you go, oh, my God, we're bleeding talent. Well, here's the deal, the real deal, when you know the numbers. 50% of the captains have to get out because, you know, it's, it's called physics. You have 3,600 captains in a year group, and by law, you can have 1,800 majors. So that's kind of the physics. But, but here's the deal. You can't stop there because that's what people, well, we, at least where I was, what I want to do is keep 80%, stay with me, 80% of the top 50% of the cap. I want to keep the best captains in the Army that have the skills that we want to keep. And we've got to compete for them, and we've got to start early. And we, we want to make sure that those captains uh, represent the diversity of the type of people we want. So rather than treating everyone as an interchangeable part, you know, uh, I argue, you know, just like when you go, you know, professional football, play, when a person comes, if you're a Heisman Trophy winner, when you go into the combine for, you know, you, you're a little different than a D3, you know, person coming in. So we want to identify, you know, those with the most potential early on and compete for their talents. Don't, you know, don't come back to me and say, Hey, you don't need any more captains because you got 50%. What, what I want to do, why is this person leaving? What's it going to take to compete for their talents to keep them in the Army? How do we get them in the right place? You know, you don't always get your preference in the Army, but if we can give people their preferences based on their knowledge, skills, and behavior, how do we do that? I think we have reached the end of our time journey. I'll give you a moment if you want to make any closing comments. No, I, I appreciate the, uh, the questions. I, I appreciate uh, all the support. Uh, just a special thanks uh, to all of our soldiers in the regular Army, uh, National Guard and Reserve specifically. Uh, what they're doing for the nation is unbelievable. And to the families who enable our soldiers to, to serve, thank you uh, so much. And then for the soldiers for life that are out there, our retirees and veterans, I gave you two missions. First of all, not three because you retired or you're a veteran, but I, I, I need your help. Uh, to help inspire other young men and women to serve. And I also want you to hire our vets when you're out there. So inspire and hire, and uh, thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much. And, I, you know, you remind me, 
We've got soldiers, I don't know about in harm's way, but moving to places that are dangerous. And so our, our thoughts and prayers are with them. And thank you, General McConville, for your service, for the service of your family, and for the service of our great Army. Uh, this has been a wonderful session, ladies and gentlemen. You're going to get a survey probably from our events team, and I ask you to fill that out so that we can continue to improve our events. We will have the video for this event probably posted within a day or so, maybe two at the most. And so I encourage you to share that video, and, and thanks for everything you do out there as well. And General McConville, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Tom. Yeah. Thank you for the questions.